I fear that with universities today, often what students are encouraged to do is to adopt this very critical attitude towards many things, but certainly towards their society, towards the past, to the institutions that uh, they depend upon without necessarily realizing it. And the universities, or in some of the professors anyways, not all of them, but some of them put this forward as critical thinking. And I think what they um, are in danger of doing is essentially telling the students, if you just criticize everything, that's what we mean by critical thinking. Welcome back to Ready Made Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Today's special episode of the podcast is guest hosted by Trevor Ballantyne, who serves as the president of Runnymede's Thompson Rivers University chapter. Trevor is joined by Professor David Livingston, the chair of the Liberal Studies Department at Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo, for a discussion on the history of civic nationalism in Canada and the constitutionalism of Thomas Darcy McGee. So, uh, Professor Livingston, welcome to the Runnymede Radio, and thanks thanks for showing up. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, I, I guess just by way of introduction, I, you're kind of a political theorist by trade and a member of the political studies faculty at Vancouver Island University, but you're also the chair of the Liberal Studies program, right, which is a great books program. So, can you talk a bit about that? What is liberal studies and how did you end up teaching in the program? Yeah, uh, again, thanks for having me and glad to chat. Liberal studies is an interdisciplinary program here at Vancouver Island University where we take the students through sort of a sweep of the great ideas that have occurred since uh, biblical and even pre-biblical times all the way through the medieval period, the Renaissance, modernity, and even post-modernity. And as you described it, it's sort of a great books style program. We get the students to read mostly the primary text rather than textbooks. And uh, it's a real challenge for them. But at the same time, what I've found over the years, the 17 or 18 years that I've been teaching it here, is that the students really do find a lot to cherish in the books that they're reading. There's some fantastic ideas, very challenging ideas, and ones that really set them on the path to uh, a life of, of learning. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoy teaching in the liberal studies program. And it's one of the few, I would say, left in Canada where you can actually earn a Bachelor of Arts degree at a Canadian university in which you are studying this uh, corpus of, of great works. Do you find your background in kind of political theory transfers well into teach in the program? Yeah, very well. Uh, I had the good fortune of going to the University of Dallas uh, in Dallas, Texas, uh, originally from Edmonton, Alberta, and I studied at the University of Alberta. But I went down to the University of Dallas to do my PhD, and they had a unique program there, and it was based on this interdisciplinary approach. And so all the students who were doing the PhD, whether you were politics or literature or uh, philosophy, we all combined together and did a set of core courses in addition to our specialized courses. And those core courses were designed to take us through this great sweep of the of uh, the tradition of great ideas and great books. And that's where I really got a taste of this style of, of learning. So when a position came open back in Canada, which is where my wife and I wanted to return to anyways, and it was very similar to what I was doing at the University of Dallas, a great books interdisciplinary program, I jumped at the opportunity to come back up and 
and teach here. So yeah, the political philosophy has been a, a very big help for me in teaching this kind of program, but also being exposed to lots of works outside of what you would normally think of as political philosophy. We did everything from Dante's Divine Comedy down at the University of Dallas. Uh, we did uh, Plato's Republic. We did Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. We did, you know, it was just a, a fantastic experience down there. Yeah, I know that in your master's degree, that kind of, you studied under someone who does that, right? They looks at great works of literature and gives it kind of a political theory uh, spin to it, right? Yeah, that was Leon Craig, and that was at the University of Alberta, and he was a big influence on me for sure. And you're right, uh, we would do studies of uh, Shakespeare's plays alongside uh, a Platonic dialogue, for instance. Um, so yeah, he was a very big influence on me. That's great. Now, so outside of just teaching in uh, liberal studies and the political studies faculty, I, I know you're in the process of founding a research center at VIU. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a bit about that and what to expect from this publication? Yeah, it's still in its early stages. Uh, essentially what I'm doing is I'm taking an existing research center, uh, the director retired. And so the university just asked, well, uh, you know, what's gonna happen with this research center? Uh, does someone wanna take it over and try to push it in a new direction? So I put my hand up and said, I would like to maybe see what we could do with this. And uh, so we're still developing it, it's still early days, but it's gonna be called the Center for Liberal Education and Citizenship. And so what we're hoping to do is have a center here, which will look at these two ideas, liberal education and everything that that entails, which we sort of touched on briefly already, but also citizenship. So, you know, specifically Canadian citizenship, I hope, but citizenship more broadly. And the question is, really, what does a liberal education contribute, if anything, to the formation of proper citizens? And personally, I think it contributes quite a lot. So uh, in a way, the center is going to be there to uh, promote a good, you know, text-based great books program as essential to formation of citizens who can go out in the world and think carefully about complex issues, uh, discuss with others in a meaningful way, and, uh, and yeah, exercise their citizenship in a responsible manner. Oh, great. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it's a good point to bring up your recent contribution to the book, uh, Canadian Conservative Political Thought, because I know that comes up quite a bit throughout it where you're ta talking about uh, Thomas D.R.C. McGee and uh, kind of his view on liberal education and, and maybe education in general in the state. So, yeah, you you wrote a paper called The Sacred Temple of Truth, Thomas D.R.C. McGee's Civic Nationalism. So for starters, how did you get involved with the publication? But uh, I guess more general, you know, what is Canadian conservative political thought and uh, and kind of civic nationalism in that context? Yeah, well, one of the uh, co-editors, Lee Trepanier, um, he and I have worked together in the past on some other um, projects. And uh, so he contacted me and said he had this idea for a book. And, and I said, I'd love to contribute something if I could work on, uh, on Darcy McGee. And so he welcomed that. And um, so it was, yeah, it was a great project. I was glad I could be a part of it. And 
The uh, your question, what exactly is Canadian conservatism? That's in a way one of the things I think the that uh, the book was attempting to answer, and so it's not something that's easy to just put into a bullet point because there's different streams that seem to um, come into that conservatism in Canada question. There's kind of a kind of a red Toryism, as some people talk about it. There's also a more uh, individualistic uh, classical liberalism, and there's a social conservative wing. And these sides don't always get together or, or you know, agree with one another. They don't always agree that they should be part of the same big tent. Um, and so I think that's what the book is also exploring is just what are these different iterations of quote unquote conservative thought in Canada and what role might they play in the development of Canadian political culture? Um, I'm sort of interested in Darcy McGee because he seems to straddle some of these boundaries a little bit. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit more later on. Um, but uh, he's, I found him to be quite a fascinating figure in our Canadian history. Yeah, I found it interesting in the article, you refer to uh, DRC McGee as a radical conservative, but kind of in the context, I, at least how I understood you to find it, is that he believed in kind of truth that transcends the city. Yeah, exactly. That notion of a radical conservative is actually one that I borrow from a writer and thinker that I really appreciate, uh, Ava Braun, who's a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, another great books program, by the way. And so she has that phrase, a radical conservative. And in a certain sense, it refers in her version to a person who is respectful of tradition, but not enslaved to tradition. So if there's a conservative element to that, it's that you can see and respect that there's certain traditions that have arisen over time, and there's a certain amount of deference and respect for those traditions. At the same time, she emphasizes the radicalism of a thinker, and radical is uh, from the root, meaning radix, or, or to get to the root of things. And so a thinker who's willing at the same time to question and to get to the root of things is what she wants to combine in a in the way into this radical conservatism. And I saw that in McGee when I was reading his speeches from the time just around when Canada was being formed. He really is interested in deeply thinking about issues while at the same time being very respectful of traditions and uh, cultures and the importance of cultures for peoples. Um, and so that seemed one of the best sort of monikers to, to describe McGee. That, that's great. I guess to just bridge into some more substantive stuff on McGee, I, I know you mentioned it in the article that uh, McGee was kind of radical, quote unquote, uh, opposed to kind of British rule. And, but then he turned around and ended up being one of the kind of founders of the BNA Act. Can you mm -hmm. talk a bit to that change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're right. I mean, that picks up radical in a, in a different sense of the word. Yeah. You know, this is when he was younger and he, uh, he and some other individuals attempted to overthrow British rule in, in Ireland. It was a failed uh, rebellion. And some of his co-conspirators were exiled to places like Australia and, and uh, there were death sentences. Those got commuted. Darcy McGee fled to the United States, was an, ex was an exile in the United States for a while. Uh, 
And so he had always been uh, editor of a newspaper in one place or another. He was constantly starting these newspapers and, and um, keeping his political activity going that way. And so for a long time, he was still committed to this notion that uh, British rule was was wicked and, and Ireland needed to become independent. He lives in the United States for a while and uh, he he's hit the shores right about the time when this party called the Know Nothings is becoming uh, fairly prominent. And the Know Nothing is sort of a, a xenophobic party that is not interested at all in immigration and is particularly hostile to Irish Catholics who are coming over. Uh, there used to be signs in some of the windows of shops in the places that McGee was living in in the United States on the eastern seaboard that would say, you know, help wanted, Irish need not apply. So they were just completely opposed to the Irish uh, coming in. And so he's, he lived with that hostility, that sense that, oh, this is strange. I mean, in one sense, America is supposed to be committed to the principles of liberty, but they seem utterly hostile to, to my people and, and me. He uh, eventually was invited by some Irish Catholics to come up and visit uh, Montreal, which is where they were based. And so he goes to visit them and he begins to kind of look around and say, this is, this is phenomenal. There, there seems to me to be in the uh, British colonies just north of the United States, a greater freedom and a greater respect for uh, freedom of religion, uh, freedom of speech than even in the United States. So that gets him thinking, hmm, I wonder maybe the problem isn't the British institutions, the principles of government per se, it's precisely that the British are not allowing those principles to flourish in Ireland. So he has this kind of awakening moment where he suddenly says, you know, I could be committed in a certain way to those British principles of constitutionalism, the rule of law, the freedom of speech. Um, and I see those flourishing in Canada in a way that they're not in the United States. So he eventually moves to Canada and becomes one of the uh, foremost and earliest exponents of this idea of uniting the colonies together and forming this new nation called Canada. That's great. Um, so you also cover in there kind of, and I guess this is kind of the bulk of the work, is McGee's kind of vision for Canada with, through that document and just more general, generally. Um, so can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So a Part, I would say, of this development in McGee's thinking and this kind of maturation uh, in his political ideas is uh, he starts to think about um, the, the place or the role of these different identities, as, as we maybe now call them. Uh, here he is. He's an Irish Catholic who's living in Canada at the time in Montreal. We've got the French Catholics who are um, dominant in what will later become Quebec. You have the English and their Protestant leanings in Canada, uh, Canada West. And these groups are sort of hostile towards each other. They're not necessarily getting along. It's difficult to find political compromise. And so McGee starts to think about, you know, is there a way in which we could form a, a country in which these identities, which are important to people, and he never denigrates them, he never says that those are unimportant, but where the individual Canadians could begin to transcend those differences and become united by what 
uh, I've described in the article is as civic nationalism. So a nationalism that would unite people around certain political principles rather than a kind of ethnic nationalism where you place the importance and the unity of your people around certain ethnic or cultural features such as uh, you know language or religion or uh, skin color or whatever other characteristics you might point to. It seems that McGee is starting to understand that if Canada is going to form a country, it needs to find some principles that we could attach ourselves to that are meaningful principles, but that transcend those kinds of categories. And so that's what he begins to look for. And that's what I think he lays out as, as his vision for Canada. And a lot of those principles do then come back to the British tradition of constitutionalism, constitutional law, rule of law. And as I point out in the article, he's got a lot of respect as well for the uh, Declaration of Independence in the United States. He refers to that work very explicitly and draws inspiration from it. Although he's got some caveats around that too, which is sort of interesting. Um, he's, he's not going full, uh, fully in that direction, but he can appreciate exactly what the Americans were lay, laying out in the Declaration. After all, the Declaration refers to a self-evident truth, right? And uses that, in a sense, as the principle by which the United States would set itself apart from all other nations and to which all citizens, despite whatever their cultural heritage might be, could then uh, form an attachment and a, and a form of patriotism. So I think that's what he's looking for to happen in Canada as well. Yeah, one thing that I've always kind of thought was maybe interesting between the difference between Canada and the States is like the States enshrined the kind of ideal right in the declaration of independence and it it's just funny that the bna act didn't really go that far to do it that we didn't get the life liberty and security of persons until 1982 much later i don't know if you have any thoughts on that but yeah that is curious because in a certain way i can see where thomas darcy mcgee is resisting the declaration and the natural rights document that we might associate with, for instance, John Locke in the second treatise, because Jefferson, who writes the declaration after all, nods that uh, nods towards Locke and says, this is where I got a lot of my ideas from. And there's a heavy individualism there, right? So that's the kind of classical liberal wing of conservatism. And I think McGee has a sympathy for that. That's why he does endorse the declaration to some extent. On the other hand, because he lived in the United States and he saw what he saw were the excesses of democracy, he's inclined also in the direction of kind of a Burkean traditionalism. And so there's a Burkean conservatism to McGee. He, in one speech, says to an audience, I think he was speaking in Montreal, he says, I have three main influences that have really shaped my political thinking. It's Burke, Burke, and Burke. So Burke obviously was very important for him. Yet at the same time, you can appreciate this other Lockean individualism. Um, so I don't know if I'm satisfied that he found the perfect blending of those two sort of forms of conservatism, if, if that's what we want to call them. I mean, one is kind of a liberalism and one is a conservatism. But he was certainly interested in trying to amalgamate those two positions into something. So you're right, we don't have... Um, a document like the Declaration that that states those principles straight out. But what you also find with McGee 
that I think is interesting is not long after the BNA Act, he immediately begins saying, we in Canada have to start coming up with a, uh, a like a, a national uh, literature. We need to form the imagination of Canadians to correspond in a certain sense with the principles that are embedded in the constitution. So he goes way beyond just, you know, drafting a constitution. Um, and um, I, I mean no harm by this in a lawyerly kind of way, right? <laughs> but he's also thinking about how do you inspire people to see the principles that are embedded in the constitution as something that are worthy of respect. And he's got this whole idea, well, we got to have a, a national literature around this. So, so he writes hundreds and hundreds of poems, actually, that he's hoping would become kind of part of the curriculum for Canadians ever after, which in which he celebrates Canada as a as a home for uh, these principles of freedom. It's it's quite fascinating, I find. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, well, just to keep going on this idea of comparing Canada to the states, I know I've read and enjoyed some of your work on Lincoln in the past, and I'm just curious if if you see similarities as how Lincoln is an icon to the states to how Thomas Darcy McGee is Canada. Yeah, somewhat. I mean, I think, to be honest, uh, McGee would probably admit this himself as well, that he would you know, sort of pale in comparison to to the greatness of Lincoln in a way. And Lincoln was also facing quite a different circumstance insofar as the United States was uh, disintegrating into the Civil War. Unfortunately, we didn't we didn't face that. Um, but I think both of them, Lincoln and McGee, do have a sensitivity to the power and the importance of rhetoric. And so Lincoln is very famous for his uh, his rhetoric, his his skills at um, using, you know, and and I would say properly using the power of rhetoric to persuade his audience to become, in a sense, um, better than they may otherwise have been, to appeal both to the emotions and to the intellect. And what we find in McGee over and over again is the same uh, skill, and is something that others commented on as well, that he was a very captivating orator. And he could, he could, in a way that other politicians just seemed not to be able to do, to take complex ideas and to be able to speak about them in a way that was very inspiring for the audience. So he's often the point person who's going around um, the, the, the colonies at the time, convincing audiences that a united Canada would be a good idea. And he ends up being successful. So I think that's one place where I would show a real clear correspondence between Lincoln and McGee is their powers of, of rhetoric and oration and, and their ability to persuade an audience. And again, keeping in mind that we sometimes use rhetoric as a pejorative term, you know, like, oh, it's just spin. It's just, uh, you're just bamboozling people. Um, but that's not as traditional notion. You know, rhetoric is a tool that can be used for, for good or for ill. And I think it's something which politicians, uh, Churchill, Lincoln, McGee, others, clearly saw as absolutely essential to their toolkit to, um, to bring the best out of their societies, to motivate people to stay true to these principles. Yeah, 
I mean, it's, it's interesting, at least speculatively, that how the kind of idea of being an American is shaped by some of these figures like Lincoln and they and exactly like you're saying, the rhetoric, like it almost becomes a part of being a citizen to the nation. And one of the questions I had coming out of reading your article is, you know, at least modernly, there's more of a trend I see in education to condemn or maybe vilify like historical figures and historical political figures, uh, such as Darcy McGee. Could you talk about that aspect of your essay? And, you know, is there a benefit to learning about these kind of founders and their ideas and ambitions? Yeah, I think there's still a benefit to it. And I would never suggest that we, you know, kind of turn them into saints or something like that. Um, or was I thinking that you were suggesting that at all? But mm-hmm. that, you know, they're they're not to be studied in a way in which we don't see anything critical about them. I think that's, that's what we need to do. We'll be able to see the good and the bad. But we don't just go to them looking for all the things that they did wrong or all the flaws about them. We should also go in there with an honest assessment of what it was that they were able to achieve given the circumstances that they faced and then appreciate what it is that they accomplished. Um, I also think it's, it is important for Canadian citizens to know their history so that we know where these ideas came from and what justified them. You know, I think it's Thomas Pangle who makes the argument that it's often at those moments where there's a revolution or there, there's a, a change in the regime where the principles have to be articulated with utmost clarity because it's those individuals at that time who have to make the case that this will be the new foundation for what is to what is to come. So if we're puzzled about what is Canada, as we often are, like, what, what are we? Who are we? <laughs> what binds this nation? I think it's not bad to go back to the founding uh, around Confederation and ask, well, what did those individuals who formed this country say precisely about that question? Let's figure out what they said. Now, we don't have to, again, slavishly accept everything they said, but at least it's a good starting point. We can say, all right, well, what were they hoping to achieve and what reasons did they give for it? And are those still good reasons? Um, Whereas I think you're right, there's kind of a mood right now um, in which the past is regarded as something which we have surpassed. And so in a way, we don't even have to learn very much from it. We just look back and look for all the blemishes and say, oh, in a way, is kind of arrogant because we just confirm to ourselves we're so much superior to everyone who came before us. And I'm not willing to do that. I'm willing to go back every once in a while and say, you know what, I think there's some pretty smart people back there. I bet I could learn a thing or two from them if I just gave them a chance and, and gave them a fair hearing. Yeah. I mean, there's one part in the essay that I found interesting is that you talked about Darcy McGee's kind of insistence on an esteem of principles over maybe, you know, institutions or governments or, or even historical figures, but like this idea that, you know, principles should be esteemed, maybe not their application. 
Yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to get at with this notion he seems to have of there's there's something he believes which transcends politics. And I'm willing to admit it's probably in part, in large part for him, informed by his Catholic faith as well, right? So for him, there's a just and divine being that sort of stands above politics and by comparison makes politics look rather small. Um, but we see that same notion of transcendence in, for instance, Plato and Aristotle, insofar as in Plato's Republic, for instance, Socrates is trying to get one of the conversational partners he's working with in the dialogue, the Republic, um, this young man named Glaucon, to sort of recognize that there is something, the truth or the good, or however we want to characterize it, which transcends the political. And by transcending the political and giving the human mind something to aspire to, to know, to seek wisdom, to seek something that's beyond the political, but might still be somewhat dependent on the political, helps in a way to moderate our politics because it tells us, for instance, that not all of our problems are going to be solved here. Politics is not the solution to everything. There is something more to human life and to human striving and to the spirit than, than simply politics. And I think what McGee also finds in that is something that can actually unite us in a way. So to borrow a line from uh, Du Bois, the, uh, the famous civil rights pioneer from the early 1900s in the United States, Du Bois speaks about, you know, rising above the color veil to meet in a certain sense on the plane of the intellect. And he says, uh, I won't get the quotation exactly right, but he says, above the color veil, um, I dwell with whichever author I choose, be it Shakespeare or Aristotle or whoever, and they come to me without disdain. So Du Bois seems to see as well there that there's a certain kind of transcendence beyond the peculiarities of your individual being on which, on the, on the plane of human intellect, we can meet in a certain sense as equals. And I see Darcy McGee, this constant reference to principles which are accessible by the mind as that thing he's hoping Canadians will be able to unite around as part of their civic nationalism. And then that will moderate their intense factional discord, which seems to be anchored rather than the things that divide us, right? Oh, you speak French, I speak English, you're Protestant, I'm Catholic. He says we need to bracket those things and find something that can unite us. And that's going to have to be above the plane of those uh, peculiarities. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of the central focus of the essay, right? You call it the sacred temple of truth. And, you know, just to kind of bridge that into this idea of educational institutions and, and stuff, I know much of your work has focused on pedagogy, right? And there was a recent contribution to the Dicey Law Review by Professor Robert P. George, titled The Truth-Seeking Mission of Universities and Its Conditions. So I wanted to just read you a section from that, kind of hear some of your thoughts on it. Uh, Professor George says, I think the proper attitude for us to hold is the attitude Plato teaches us to adopt, especially in the Gorgias. We must always be on the lookout for and be open to the person who will confer upon us the inestimable benefit of showing us that we are in error. 
where in fact we are in error. Such a person in correcting our mistakes does us the very best service. We need to see that and we need to help our students to see it. One who sees his intellectual adversary as an enemy to be defeated rather than as a friend joined with him dialectically in the pursuit of a common aim, namely knowledge of the truth is already off the rails. He's in grave danger of falling into the ditch of sophistry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fantastic quotation, I think. And it, it does align nicely, I think, with what McGee is trying to argue, um, that if we were to follow, for instance, some of the postmodernists who might argue that there is no truth, everything is relative, and all that you have really are these um, cultural and uh, uh yeah, cultural and maybe ethnic beginning points. And you then have to build your sense of meaning around those pre-given aspects of yourself that is going to lead to a community which is forever fragmented because there is no common ground upon which we can meet as human beings. And McGee wants to reject that. I think he's realized just through his own journey. Again, if we think back, here he was rebelling against British rule and sort of accusing the British as British as being in somehow, you know, in some way um, different than the Irish and therefore not anyone that you could deal with. He eventually has to break with that and realize, you know what? No, there's certain principles that rise above these categories of Irish and British, constitutionalism, rule of law, as I mentioned. And those are things which are accessible to the mind and which we can form some agreements about. So, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's again, where he wants to go. That's why he calls it the sacred temple of truth, the thing that we should be constantly keeping in mind. And I like this idea that um, Robert George is, is mentioning, and that is we do have to stay moderate ourselves. We have to be willing to listen to the other side and, and accept when we're wrong. And, um, you know, that is difficult to do without it sort of kind of descending again into a kind of relativism. Well, then you're saying that nobody's right. It's not quite that. Socrates never was a relativist, but he was always open to dialogue. He was always open to thinking. He was always open to thanking that other person he was conversing with for pointing out where he was wrong because he wanted to correct his errors and actually move a little bit closer to becoming wise. And I think that's the only way you can do it. Yeah, there's another interesting thing that you point out. It's around, you know, some of the historical uh, historicism stuff or the critical theory, like this real attack on liberal institutions. And you, you mentioned in there, it's quite funny that McGee kind of rejected the dismantling of admittedly imperfect institutions. I didn't. I thought that was interesting. It's like the institutions know that they're not perfect, but they're the best thing we got, right? <laughs> yeah, and the alternative certainly isn't pretty because that's kind of that Burkean side of him again, where Burke seems to insist uh, very strongly on uh, these this the slow kind of development of these traditions and these institutions. And they may hide a kind of wisdom that is hard to discern if you just look at them from the outside. 
And yet, if you were to destroy those institutions, then you would realize what they truly meant, but it would be too late. And I fear that with universities today, often what students are encouraged to do is to adopt this very critical attitude towards many things, but certainly towards their society, towards the past, to the institutions that uh, they depend upon without necessarily realizing it. And the universities, or some of the professors anyways, not all of them, but some of them put this forward as critical thinking. And I think what they um, are in danger of doing is essentially telling the students, if you just criticize everything, that's what we mean by critical thinking. When, again, you kind of go back to this idea of radical conservatism that Ava Braun, we started with, she says radical conservatism is willing to go down to the roots of things, to examine the roots, but not always to pull them up and to tear them out and to throw the plant away. Sometimes the radical spends the time to go down to look to find out what's really there in order then to replant and to nourish what you've found, which may have come from the past. So I think what we should be doing with students is first at least allowing them time to understand the institutions, see where they came from, understand the arguments that were put forward when these came into existence, what justifies them, if anything. Once you've understood, then you could step back and maybe start to think about criticizing it. But it's almost like the universities are in a rush. They don't even let the students do that. It's just like, okay, let's just criticize. Let's just tear things down and let's build some kind of utopia in the future. And I think McGee would be very suspicious of that. Yeah, I I guess we're almost out of time, David, but when, I guess a good point to end that relates to this is you have a very interesting kind of definition of constitution or like like a constitution or, or how to make maybe a legitimate constitution is you kind of define it as the dis- discovering timeless principles. I found that interesting. I don't know if you have any words on that. Yeah. You know, would I be willing to defend the current Canadian constitution as necessarily embodying nothing but timeless principles? Probably not. There's all kinds of compromises in there. That too is a an imperfect institution, let's say. But um, yeah, anyways, I, I think I'm just sticking with McGee in, in saying that insofar as that's what he was looking for, he kept saying, you know, whatever it is that we're going to propose for Canada in terms of a constitution, it needs to correspond somewhat accurately to what human nature requires for its flourishing. So in a way, that's kind of an Aristotelian kind of way of looking at things. So now I've combined Locke, Aristotle, and Burke. It's just this hodgepodge of things that are going through McGee. But I think there's something to that as well. He's like, well, you know, we're trying to come up with a good society and what is the goalpost? What is the standard by which you measure whether you've come close to that? And it has to have something to do with uh, what what the core demands are for human beings such that they can flourish, that they can be happy, that they can have friendship, that they can prosper. And so I think that's what he's looking for, right? It's these, again, these principles, and that should be at the center of your constitution. That's perfect. Well, Professor Livingston, uh, it's always a pleasure and thank you for stopping in to have a chat. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. 
Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. This week's episode was guest hosted by Trevor Ballantyne. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for updates on the exciting events that our student chapters have planned for the upcoming school year. So long for now. Thank you.